Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Perhaps <clears throat> we'll start that one again. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, we've got Monday to deal with. We've got all sorts of uh, things coming at us. We've got the emergency alert to talk about. We've got Diane Abbott to talk about. We've got anti-Semitism in the Labour Party to talk about. We've got Dominic Raab uh, getting kicked out of his job for bullying to talk about because we broke that story on Friday. And in fact, uh, it has gone nowhere since, really. Nobody's really proven one thing or another uh, other than Dominic Raab proving uh, that he's not very happy about it, basically. We're going to talk about school facing more strikes this week. We're going to talk about how the Home Office can't tell the difference between an 18-year-old child uh, or a 17-year-old child or a 16-year-old child and a 42-year-old man. And also, we're going to talk about the royal family as well. It's a coronation just a couple of weeks away and we've got lots and lots to talk about. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on. Uh, we want to hear from you as much as you want to hear from us as well, of course, because we are the place where you hear the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So, at the end of the day, you know we care about what you think and we want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We're going to kick things off very shortly with Candice Holdsworth. Let's get it on. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. I'm still not sure if I'm suffering from hay fever uh, or some kind of a cold that won't go away. But we will get there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my voice will get less croaky as we go forward. Let's say a very good morning to Candice Holdsworth, journalist and commentator, of course. Candice, very good morning to you. Morning. So uh, let's kick things off with the Labour Party and why on earth Diane oh, yes. is still in it? Because we keep hearing this morning that, you know, Keir Starmer's under more and more pressure to get rid of her. Um, the thing that astonishes me, I suppose, is that there are still people in the Labour Party who believe the things that she believes. And all this nonsense about, well, I wrote a first draft and, you know, I didn't really mean to send it. You kind of go, what was the second draft going to be? I know someone in the, the Spectator, it was Sam Leaf, described it as a surreal U-turn. I mean, who turns in a first draft that is the absolute opposite of your arguments? I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. I think people would have more respect for her if she just owned what she said. She either stuck by it, doubled down, or she apologised and said, actually, I was wrong. But instead, she tries to make a weaselly excuse and just get out of it, which just makes people even more sceptical of her. I mean, the argument was obviously deeply silly and deeply offensive on so many levels. And it's clear that is what she believes. Yeah. And it's not just her. I mean, you look at Rupa Huck. Do you remember Rupa Huck, who made those comments about Quasi Quateng yes. being superficially black? Yeah. It's a certain worldview. They have a very, very, very 
rigid worldview with hierarchies of privilege. Mm. And for instance, like with Rupa Huck, she doesn't like Kwasi Kwarteng, so he doesn't get to be black anymore. Right. I mean, the thing that I found really interesting yesterday uh, was uh, twofold. One, the fact that the Observer got this letter, published it, didn't actually think it was a story, which tells you all about the editorial uh, beliefs of the Observer, because they think saying something like that is completely normal and not worthy of any sort of comment whatsoever. You would have thought somebody in the building would have gone... Um, don't you think this is going to be a bit of a problem for Diane Abbott? They obviously think it's such a normal view that they don't think it's exceptional. Then, um, when the story comes out, all of the apologists for Labour were saying, well, Sakir has acted very quickly. He's acted very firmly. She's been immediately suspended. Well, yeah, but that's not really the point. The point is surely that she, as a senior member of the Labour Party, because that's what she is, and a woman who would have been Home Secretary in a Jeremy Corbyn uh, government, which Keir Starmer supported and, and promoted, that she still has these beliefs. Yes, and they're clearly, I mean, it's clearly still a problem for the Labour Party. It's so true. She's a long-serving senior veteran Labour Party MP. And I think, you know, this explains sort of why a lot of people in the Labour Party fail to get to grips with what Corbyn represented to many Jewish people. They just didn't seem to understand it. And, you know, it's like the comedian David Badil, who's on the left and, you know, said a lot about how Jews don't count. Mm. And I think for a lot of Jewish people who traditionally had supported the Labour Party were just so shocked at just how profoundly ignorant someone like Diane Abbott could be or Jeremy Corbyn could be. And I think that this problem isn't just going to go away because, I mean, after everything that's happened, she still clearly believes these things. And then when challenged on them, I mean, can't even really defend it or explain it in any way. So she is obviously in her own echo chamber. It's sort of like um, the BBC reporter who was challenged by Elon Musk and, you know, just started stuttering and didn't know what to say because he doesn't interrogate his own beliefs. And I'm sure that it's very similar with Diane Abbott and other people in the Labour Party. Yeah, well, exactly right. And also, I mean, Keir Starmer thought he was having a good weekend because obviously Dominic Raab uh, resigned on Friday and you would have thought that for a Labour politician for a Labour leader, that would be great news. But he's managed to screw it up again uh, and he's ended up looking actually much worse on Monday morning as the leader of a party which is supposed to have got rid of its anti-Semitism problem, but clearly hasn't. Oh, no, Rishi Sunak must be so grateful for this. I mean, after all the stuff with Dominic Raab, a controversy, he didn't want it. Right. It's off the front, it's it's no longer in the headlines. Now it's all about the Labour Party. Though for me, it does speak, you know, to just what poor quality politicians we have now and just, you know, what a really rubbish choice we have at the next election between these two parties who I think a lot of people are very disappointed with right now. Exactly right. And I think the problem for Labour supporters as well is which Labour Party is going to turn up at the ballot box. You know, we've got some elections coming up locally. Uh, We've got Labour standing for several things there. Then we'll have the national election if there are any by-elections in between. Who knows what the Labour Party stands for? I don't know what Keir Starmer stands for. Uh, Rod Liddell wrote a great piece at the weekend saying that he'd spent the last several weeks trying to find... A, a subject that Keir Starmer has not completely reversed his attitude on. Yes. And he can't find one because almost everything, everything that he's ever said, he has now gone in completely opposite way. Yes, he's a complete opportunist. That's yeah. what Keir Starmer is. I mean, people tend to talk about his personality more than his policies yeah. and his beliefs. Well, I'm sorry, people don't just run a government by personality alone. We need to know what he believes, what he stands for, what he wants to achieve in government. I mean, they released those five pledges, mm. which to me are the most vague sounding things in the world. Yeah. Most people cannot remember them. Even I have to sort of 
think very carefully when I'm like, what were the Labour five pledges for the next election? I mean, I, I think they've only done so well lately because the Conservatives have just been imploding and shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, it, it's a pure accident that, they, that they're, they're up in the polls. I don't think it's through any great strength mm. of their own position. I don't think it's like in the Blair years where suddenly Labour seemed to represent this exciting new alternative. Alternative. I don't think that's going on right now with Labour at all. No, I think that's the real problem that they've got. Because also, you know, they appeal to the Putney kind of champagne socialista types, but what they don't appeal to is anybody in the red wall uh, with their kind of trans ideology, uh, Keir Starmer's inability to describe properly what a woman is. According to him, there's at least 35,000 women in Britain with a penis. You know, he can't... Uh, make up his mind about migrants. I mean, we'll come on to that in late uh, in, in a bit. Where you've got this ex-ISIS fighter claiming to be 17, and he actually is 42. Gets into the country, then gets legal aid to stay. I mean, it's unbelievable. But if you couldn't be in, ahead of this government in an opinion poll at this point, you know that really would be dire. But the gap is actually narrowing. It is. It absolutely is. I mean, it looks like the Conservatives made the right choice bringing Rishi Sunak in because he does seem to be trying to, 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 to rebuild the Conservative brand um, as a respectable one. Mm. But, I mean, Labour should be killing it. I mean, first of all, I mean, the, the Conservatives have been in power about 13 years. And usually parties don't get to be in that power. Usually in this country, parties are in power for that long and then they leave power. I mean, it's just this sort of cycle that's carried on over the years. But also, I mean, the Conservatives haven't covered themselves in glory. I mean, they've absolutely squandered the opportunity of Brexit. I mean, that is making people in the red wall for instance very unhappy all the culture war issues i mean it's not like the conservatives they're starting to under um um uh, rishi sunak they're starting yeah. to take a stronger stance on these things but historically they haven't i mean mm. a lot of this madness has advanced under their watch and if labor were prepared to actually take a firmer firmer line with these things they could do very well but they can't because you know, I think that many people within their ranks, it, within the Labour Party, believe these things, even if traditional Labour voters don't. I mean, I thought it was amazing the way Keir Starmer said that 99% of women don't have a penis. Yeah. And he was he was trying to find a way around this debate. But it's but still, it was very weaselly because it's not obviously it's not 99%. It's 100% mm. of women. Yes. And he should just be able to say that. But he right. can't. Because he's, he's imprisoned by all these bizarre and radical beliefs, you know, like Diane, Rabbit, uh, Diane Abbott has just demonstrated. Yeah, absolutely right. Meanwhile, of course, we've also got the climate change crazies who were roaming around London all weekend. I can't imagine what it is that they actually did. I, don't, I didn't really catch much of what they did, uh, but I saw quite a few of them ramping around on the trains and stuff. And the, a few of them got involved in a die-in, apparently, outside Buckingham Palace. But, I mean, it was all a bit of a waste of space, wasn't it? It was. I mean, apparently they're, they're trying new tactics now. So they don't want to go for the sort of shock and awe that they used to, that they thought would be able to bring the government down and affect great change, but actually just serve to really annoy people and turn against their cause. So this weekend they were planning to just be a bit more mild-mannered no. about it, apparently. And so Roger Hallam, the um, former leader of Extinction Rebellion, who came up with this whole strategy yes. of, you know... Um, uh, creating as much maximal, maximum civil di- disobedience as possible. I mean, he's been pushed to the fringes of the group now because th- it's just been so damaging for their message. Yeah, well, it really has. And we'll come back to them, I'm sure, uh, coming up very, very shortly. But what about, uh, let's talk about the alarm system as well, because the alarm system apparently uh, went off for some people, didn't go off for other people. How was it for you? 
Yeah, mine went off. My husband, who's on three, his didn't go off. We were like, what's going on? I mean, I was really annoyed about the whole thing anyway. I mean, my phone was like hidden up in my bedroom. I didn't even want to know about it. It was just way too Pavlovian for me. You know, like some sound emitting from the government on my phone and I'm supposed to do what? I know. know, I know, I mean, like a news alert would have been more reliable than this. People probably would have been better just getting like a notification on their phone from some newspaper about there being an emergency. I mean, really, and I do not trust them to use this judiciously. I see absolutely no point in it. What are they going to use it for? Well, I mean, this is a problem. I've been asking that question for quite some time and I can't really get an answer. I'm told it has to come through the Cabinet Office, so it will only be uh, something very, very serious. But as I said to somebody at the weekend, it's all very well saying there's a fire, uh, for example, at Grenfell. But if you're in Grenfell, you know there's a fire. If you're not in Grenfell, it doesn't really matter. You know, if you're in a wildfire in the middle of the new forest, you might care that there's a wildfire, but you would already know there was a wildfire. And if you were going to the new forest, you could probably see it from far away because there would be a lot of smoke and flames rising from it. You know, I don't really see the point of them saying there's a flood or, you know, there's a roadblock or, you know, uh, another member of the SNP has been arrested or whatever it is they're going to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't live in California above some fault line, you know, where there's like constant earthquakes and stuff. I mean, when have we ever needed a mass alert like this when there's some sort of disaster where everyone needs to be alerted about it. I mean, there are terrorists. There have been terrorist attacks. Obviously, they've been confined to small areas. Mm. And the news is often quite reliable. You know, you find out pretty quickly what's going on. You don't need a government alert on your phone. The whole thing just seems superfluous to me. And also, it means that the government can control what they think an alert and an emergency is. So if they don't tell you it's an emergency, apparently it's not. I know, I know. And anything that anything that's quite minor could constitute an emergency. Yeah. I remember during the lockdown when um, Sadiq Khan d- declared a state of emergency yes. in London. And I remember thinking, how unnecessary. That is not what people need right now. I mean, people were already in a state of yeah. fear. That was the last thing that was required. Yes. But this is what local governments do and sort of public bodies do because it makes them feel important. But we'll come back to that yeah, uh, very, very shortly. Candice Holdsworth is with us. We're going to talk some more about a great many things, including of course uh, the ex-ISIS fighter who came to the UK pretending to be a child right he was actually 42 had a receding hairline and wrinkles but he managed to fool the home office brilliant this is Talk TV see it hear it think it talk radio and talk TV Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got plenty to do and loads of time to do it. And we're going to talk about Len Goodman uh, coming up as well. Uh, it was announced that he died, uh, passed away, sadly, aged 78, uh, after suffering with bone cancer. Uh, he was surrounded by his family and his friends. But as we said, uh, when Julie Hartley Brewer was here, a great Briton, I think, Len Goodman, a man that uh, you can look at and absolutely be uh, very very impressed with uh, in the way that he conducted himself in the way uh, that he was on TV, but also in the way that he was as an individual as well. We're talking to Candice Holdsworth, journalist and commentator. Candice, let's talk a bit about Twitter, um, because I've noticed over the weekend there's been quite a lot of, um, you know, ire um, and sort of tub thumping going on between various different people, formerly blue tick holders, some people who have been given their blue ticks back, some people who have decided to buy them, some people who have decided not to buy them. I mean, what have you made of all of that? Yeah, I think I can completely understand that Elon Musk needs to take a more aggressive strategy of monetization and Twitter not just being reliant on advertising revenue. 
you know, I think a subscription model is better. My only criticism of, use, of carrying the blue tick symbol over is I think it can be a little bit confusing because, you know, Twitter, I'm not saying it was the right system, but they would, uh, they would give people blue ticks who were considered notable. It yeah. wasn't just for verification. So if you would see a blue tick commenting, you'd think it was someone of note. Like right. you just would associate it with that. That's what the that's what right. it was designed to do. Now, however, a blue tick can be given to someone with three followers. So your brain still thinks it's someone of note. Yeah. Um, but it's not. Um, it could just be any old troll. So I do. I think it's absolutely fine having um, a um, a system, a subscription system, and then people get all the privileges that come from that. But I would have changed the symbol. I wouldn't have had a, a blue tick. Also, as a lot of people have said, you know, Twitter didn't use that system fairly. I mean, if someone was considered a little bit controversial, they mm. could have their blue tick removed. Yeah. Plenty of people with large followings who were maybe a bit more edgy politically never even got, according to Twitter, of course, you know, not according to most people in mm. the world, um, never even got a blue tick. So, I mean, it's not like Twitter managed that system fairly. No, I mean, I think the whole point of it was that in the sort of uh, cleansing of Twitter, if you like, Elon Musk's attempts at saying to people, if you pay seven quid a month, you can have one was an idea that was kind of born from trying to get rid of the anonymous accounts and the, and the, and the anonymous trolls and try to actually yeah. get people to be, uh, at least to, to be who they said they were, even yeah. if they used an assumed name. And that was a good thing, I think. But now it just yeah. seems to be all over the place because some people are getting their blue ticks back without asking. Some are asking and getting them. Charlie Sheen apparently asked for his and got it back. Bette Midler's annoyed that hers was taken away. Piers Morgan appears to have his. I don't know whether he paid for it. Gary Lineker's got his back. You know, um, politicians have all now been given a grey tick, which is even more confusing. Um, so I'm not really sure uh, where this is going to go. What I noticed at the weekend was that Twitter's become a bit more dull. My blue ticks disappeared. I don't really care. I'm certainly not going to pay for it to come back. But at the end of the day, Twitter used to be quite an entertaining place. It's now quite dull. Yes. See, this is what can happen. You know, the fact of the matter is, is, is you want Twitter to be an exciting place that people are drawn to. I mean, I think one of the problems Facebook has been suffering with is declining usage. Yeah. And as soon as that happens, as soon as you don't have the eyeballs anymore, I mean, that's the beginning of the end for the business. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that the whole the way that they switched um, from the blue tick being a system of verification to subscription, I don't think it was particularly well managed and and maybe what elon musk has underestimated is how much like the big fault the, the accounts with the big following with the, with the blue ticks mm. enjoyed that status and and now that it's gone they don't want to use twitter as much right you know and maybe that's not something you want to acknowledge but maybe that was something that was good for the business and very few people under sort of 25 use it anyway so i mean it's already in decline because it's only yeah. old gits like me that actually use it because that's what i use and if i to be honest if it wasn't from the job that i have i probably wouldn't be on it anyway but like facebook you know younger people just don't use it and that's where the growth is surely Yes, it is. It is. I mean, look, Twitter's always been hugely influential because the world's journalists are on Twitter. And now so much of political discourse or public discourse happens there. And, and you'll often, you know, it will define the news cycle. Mm. I mean, people will, will talk about certain political narratives and it will very much have been shaped by Twitter. So that is the huge advantage that Twitter has always had. 
I don't see it going away anytime very soon unless they absolutely crash into a wall. I mean, something's going to need to come along to replace that. I mean, for those of us who work in the media, we use Twitter a lot. I mean, I go on Twitter every day. We all do. We need to use this. So, I mean, unless there's actually a credible alternative, alternative, I guess it will just stumble on. Yeah, no, I think it's a news source. It has become invaluable to a lot of people who work in news. But outside of that, I wonder what use it is to anybody else. Yeah, they don't really use Twitter too much. Mm. I mean, you know, whenever I, you know, when I used to um, run websites and stuff and blogs and I, and I would analyze Twitter and I would, you know, try and see where the numbers were coming from and my followers. Yeah. I mean, a lot of non-media people will open a Twitter account, open it, like use it for a little bit, but then not use it for months. Right. I mean, you know, people, do, unless you really need it or you're, you're very, very into politics, a lot of people just don't use it right. really. And funny um, but enough- then again... There are also ghost accounts, you know, people who just use it to read the news and that's yeah. it. They don't post or do anything. No, of course. And funnily enough, a lot of people were saying just before Easter there, when the, the sort of attack ads ca- happened from Labour, that Labour was making the mistake of kind of campaigning on Twitter and on yes. social media and thinking that was going to change the world. When in fact, the Conservative Party, for good or ill, was actually going around talking to people on doorsteps. Oh, that's so important. I mean, I think... You know, one of the problems, and I think this has emerged now, of that strategy that they use is, yes, it will play to the faithful on Twitter, right? Like your audience there, be careful not to become captured by your audience on social media, you know, which can often be a very zealous ideological audience and mistake that for the the, the broader public whose views are probably a lot more moderate um, and they'll be very put off by that. I mean, that is the problem that, that Trump had in America. You know, his approach worked with the people who liked him the most, but for the undecided, it completely put them off. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember coming into work the night of the 2019 election and thinking, if Twitter's right, Jeremy Corbyn's won the election. And of course, Twitter wasn't right. No, it's not right. It does give you a very, very skewed perception of the world. It's important that you take a step back and realise that although Twitter is very important in terms of um, very good debate goes on there, you can get a lot of news, people do say interesting things, it is a little world unto itself. Mm. It really is. And it is full of political obsessives. And, and And other people in the rest of the world are not like that. No. No, other people in the real world, I think, is probably the phrase you're looking the for. The real world, yeah. <laughs> Candice, thank you very much indeed. Candice Holdsworth, journalist and commentator there, uh, giving us her view of the big stories of the day today. Uh, Diane Abbott, obviously a massive story. Keir Starmer coming under more and more pressure to dump her out of the Labour Party. He hasn't allowed Jeremy Corbyn to run as a Labour candidate in North London. Oh, by the way, apparently uh, Keir Starmer's going to go to South London today. Ooh, he's never been there before, doesn't really know what it's like. He comes from North London, from an NHS family, as he quite often points out. It was a great piece, by the way, uh, in the Times on Sunday, Sunday Times, about how Sir Keir Starmer uh, actually did when he was leader at the DPP, when he was director of public prosecutions, uh, working for the government, where he got his knighthood. He wasn't as good as he makes himself out to be. Uh, we may go into that a little bit later on with John McTiernan uh, on this show. Coming up next, though, we're going to talk about the coronation because Charlie Ray is here, former royal editor at The Sun. Uh, there's a few things to discuss because the coronation is only a couple of weeks away. And it's going to be a big bank holiday weekend. Lots for us to talk about. This is Talk TV. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile. On your wavelength. Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Much to do and plenty of time to do it in. We're here, of course, until one o'clock. Uh, then you've got Ian Collins coming up, Vanessa Feltz from four. Uh, and, of course, Jeremy Carl from seven, Piers Morgan from eight. And the talk from nine o'clock. Lots going on. And when we were here last Friday, it was quite an exciting day because Dominic Raab announced that he was resigning as Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary just ten minutes before the show started. We talked an awful lot about the bullying culture uh, that we now are said to be living amongst because, of course, uh, people are already now saying two days, three days after the fact um, that Dominic Raab, depending on your point of view politically, uh, was hounded out of his job uh, by some people who couldn't stand uh, being talked to in a way that they didn't like. Uh, to people who said, oh, no, he was found guilty of bullying. And in fact, now uh, we know what these Tories, these horrible people are like. Of course, the truth will be somewhere in between. Uh, but what somebody did say to me on Friday night was that basically if you're running a business now in this country, it's almost impossible to tell anybody to do anything because they take immediate offence uh, and they start weeping and wailing and they run off to HR and say, I've been bullied, I've been bullied, I can't stand it. You know, and that is an unfortunate place to be because it will no doubt hinder uh, the economic prosperity of this great country of ours eventually. Let's talk to Rafe Haydel Mancou, historian, broadcaster and senior fellow at the New Culture Forum because we've got plenty to talk to him about, not least the situation with Diane Abbott, not least the migration situation because he's come out with some very interesting stats over the of the last few days. Also, the ridiculous story of a boy who posed as a 17-year-old uh, who was in fact 42, uh, former ISIS fighter, came to this country, uh, had tattoos, uh, had wrinkles and was clearly a man with a receding hairline. But the Home Office thought he was a 17-year-old and so gave him special child status. Incredible. Rafe, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Always a pleasure, Mike. Nice to talk to you. Um, let's kick things off with this character, the ex-ISIS fighter, because um, even as we speak, no matter how many times Rishi Sunak says we're going to stop the boats, even though his last pronouncement on it was that he probably wasn't going to stop the boats, um, the people continue to come. And even more ridiculously, the Home Office continues to fail the public of this country uh, on a daily basis. And this is a great example of it. Yes, I mean, when I first read the story, I thought, my gosh, I need to know what moisturizer this man is using, <laughs> being, you know, 42 years old, posing as a 17-year-old. But then, as you say, turns out he's got a receding hairline, uh, fading tattoos because yeah. they're so old, clearly weather-worn. Mm. I mean, it's a complete mockery. Uh, you know, they did, you know, Migration Watch found out that of all of the disputes over age amongst young among people claiming to be under 18 migrants, 66% of those were upheld. There over a 1,000 people in 2022 who were actually uh, over the age of 18 mm. when they said that they were under. Yeah. And remarkably, 50 migrants were over 30. So it's not just this chap. 50 migrants were over 30 uh, years of age, and, and they're being placed. Not only does this actually cause a problem, I mean, it's absurd for the start that we have this situation, but firstly, of course, you've got adults actually being placed into foster care, which de deprives the rights of, of young British people who really need this care, and they're now becoming a completely neglected yeah. segment of our population who aren't getting this treatment because you have these adults receiving mm. all of that care. But also people are being placed into school systems, yeah. maybe not at the age of 42 like this chap is, but people who are in their 20s, yeah. perhaps even in their early 30s, are being placed in a school setting where, of course, they're free to do as they wish with a, with a student population. They're influencing them. They're getting them into, into, into criminal activity on some yeah. occasions. We know from previous experiences that they're making sexual advances on un underage children as well. Yeah. I mean, it's 
absolute scandal. And when, of course, we had a couple of years ago, quite rightly, a Tory MP said that we should actually have age checks by looking at their dental work, yeah. by doing x-rays to look at their teeth. Of course, we had the NGOs, we had the asylum aid charity and others saying, oh, this would be re-traumatising to these people. Give me a break. Yes. I mean, it really is ludicrous. We've seen plenty of cases, haven't we, of kids um, who are not kids being placed in schools, but also being placed in foster care. I think I'm right in saying that the guy um, who ended up coming here from Afghanistan, um, who had murdered in Europe and who en ended up murdering somebody uh, down in Dorset, in Bournemouth, I think it was, or Poole, um, was he not housed with the family uh, because they believed yeah. him to be under the age of 18? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, when Norway insisted on having a dental examination on arri all arriving refugee children, yes. they discovered that nine out of ten were in fact over 18. Yeah. For some reason, we in this country are just unwilling to take what to most people would seem like a quite logical step. And I hope that one of the amendments that will come into this bill, and it is being pushed by some Tory MPs on the right, is to actually ensure that these age checks do become standard in, in this country because yes. it's a mockery. Well, it's not just the age checks. It's the fact that every single person seemingly involved in the process and the processing, uh, as much as it goes on, um, is... It's, it's almost employed because they take everything at face value. You know, if you come to this country and say, I'm 18 or I'm 28 or I'm, I'm 8, it seems as though that's to be believed no matter what. And if you haven't committed any, you know, have you committed any crimes? No. That's fine then. You know, have you got a criminal record? No. Uh, have you been in ISIS? No. Uh, are you in danger of uh, being tortured if you go home? Yes. Oh, well, you better stay here. It's like that nobody's got any kind of critical faculty anymore. Yes, well, I mean, this 42-year-old, weather-beaten, tattooed, was, uh, was housed for over a week before mm. they did any tests. A week? Why, why is he there for even five minutes? Yeah. It should be quite clear. On your bike, mate, you're yes. clearly lying. Uh, it's a complete nonsense. But, of course, it's fueled, of course, by the NGOs and the asylum charities, who, of course, their intent is to delay the process, yeah. have every legal... Uh, option available to these people, even though it's obvious to everybody that they're actually milking the system, uh, we have to actually find some way to ensure, well, Braverman's trying her best, but she's even being thwarted by, by her own left wing of the Tory yeah. party, who seem to be completely out of touch, not only with their voter base, but with, with, with in fact most of the population. You know, Braverman said that two in one Britons support this legislation, and with an election looming, you're sort of wondering why these MPs don't realise that they're facing obliteration if they don't pull their socks up. Well, I might be able to help you there because I've got a story here in front of me which is with uh, uh, with some regard to three Conservative MPs who have criticised aspects of the government's asylum policy. This was in the Sunday Telegraph yesterday. Um, the, four, the three of them have received more than £160,000 in services and research support from the Re Refugee Asylum and Migration Policy Project, which is one of these you know, lefty pro-refugee organisations called RAMP. Uh, basically, they've paid Caroline Noakes £52,390. David Simmons uh, has received money from them as well. Um, and Simon Fell, uh, all of whom have uh, been against government policy and have supported, basically, um, uh, the knocking back of the legislation. Well, dare I say, you know, all this does, it reveals once again that a huge number of Tory MPs aren't actually traditional Conservatives they are liberal. Uh, they're liberals who join the Tory party because their prime concern is neoliberal free market economics, yeah. not doing what conservatives are supposed to do, and that's to conserve. Conserve our borders, conserve our culture, conserve our communities, 
and cons- you know conserve our way of life. And we saw this, you know, with Liz Truss, of course. Liz Truss, formerly a Lib Dem, mm. became the Tory Prime Minister. And what did she want to do? She wanted to open the borders for immigration to yeah. fuel the economy. Completely out of touch. There, there is a big schism developing, or it's already developed, between the Tory party members of parliament and between the Tory grassroots, a lot of whom are now small-c social conservatives who used to be former Labour voters who believe actually in belonging to communities. And they then, and basically, I think if there's not a solution to this at the next general election, the Tory party will be done for. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And just to go back to our friend from ISIS, who thought uh, uh, that he could convince everyone that he was under 18, he's now in a taxpayer-funded hotel, would you believe, while he awaits an appeal for his deportation to come through. Uh, and he now says he needs NHS treatment for depression. Yes, well, of course, you remember full well the story Theresa May highlighted about was it someone being deprived of their cats? Or yes. Having a cat being an essential requirement to say that's right. There are so many of the, there are so many of these things that are around. This bill that's coming forward, I think, is a very sensible bill. This is all about creating the sense of a, of a hostile environment. And the problem that we have now is that the reforms that are trying to be implemented by by the left wing of the Labour part of the of the Tory party are undermining the essential essence of this bill, yeah. which is to scare people from coming over to this country. And if they know they know they can say silly things like "I need NHS treatment for depression" and so forth to stay in this country, that's not going to act as any deterrent whatsoever. No, it really isn't. I mean, it reminds me of the old joke my father used to tell about the guy who murdered his parents and then asked for leniency on the grounds that he was an orphan um, when he was before the judge. Um, let's talk about your uh, uh, rather interesting statistical um, framework that you put out about the numbers of people coming here um, from abroad, people in this country who were born abroad. Um, according to your tweet, I know it's been there for a while, 42% of the 10 million foreign-born residents in England arrived in the last decade. That's right. So th- th- this is all the results that we've had from the last census results and so forth. And it's quite unprecedented. You know, I, I yesterday, uh, yesterday and on this, over the weekend, rather, the New Culture Forum, uh, which is the think tank to which I belong, mm. had a big conference in Birmingham dealing yeah. with very various issues. I, I gave a speech on the this very point of, of migration. You know, in the last 25 years, since New Day became to power in 97, 26 years, We've had more immigration to this country in those 26 years than in the last 2,000 years combined. That's an astonishing thing to contemplate. You know, when we, when we, uh, often when people say quite rightly that Britain has always been welcoming to overseas uh, immigrants coming in and refugees, which is a good thing to celebrate, people mention the Idi Amin Ugandan refugees who yeah. fled here after being expelled from Uganda. And that was a hugely controversial number of people who came mm. in the 70s, if you remember. I do. Uh, now, that number was 27,000 people. Yeah. We, we get 27,000 people coming here every 10 days now. Yeah. Can you imagine that, right? So this is completely without precedent. The idea that Britain's always been a nation of immigrants is a complete myth. Mm. You know, in, in 1851, it was around 0.5% of the population were, were born abroad. Uh, by, 19, by 1901, it was about 1.5%. 1951, it was about 4.5%. Yeah. But, uh, but that shows that it took 100 years to go up by 4%. They took 50 years. Every 10 years now, the population born abroad is increasing by 4%. It's now at 16.6% of the population, completely without precedent. Under the Romans, it was only about 3%. Mm. Under the Vikings, it was about 5%. But for the last 1,000 years, it's never really been above 05 or 1%. And no society can actually sustain such rapid demographic shift because communities have no incentive 
to uh, assimilate and integrate if they're arriving to this country yes. and there are pre-built, pre-established, segregated communities with their own shops, their own languages, their own cultural institutions. And of course, we, fall, we, we now well know mm. that there are schools, for example, in, in the north of England and elsewhere from Bradford to Burnley and so forth, where, there are, where students actually believe that being Asians are the majority population of yeah. the country. Yes. Because that's all that they see around them. And of course, they go home to their parents and all they see are the television programs by satellite from their home countries. Yes. So they have no exposure to British culture, to British values. And what we do know from that on the most extreme side is because of that, we are having the we are having the perpetuation of cultural practices that we would find abhorrent in this yeah. country normally you know from be it female genital mutilation um, be it honor killings be it acid attack rises you know there's a big rise mm. we're often told by the BBC in misogyny in homophobia in anti-semitism but no one ever actually wants to ask why that is the mm. case it's the great elephant in the room it really is. And one final thought I'll leave you with. Uh, 60 people have been arrested during a week-long crackdown on illegal working by delivery drivers working for companies including Deliveroo, Just Eat and Uber Eats. I don't think anyone would be surprised by this. 44 were detained by the Home Office pending their removal from the UK. The remaining 16 were released on bail. You know, um, you do wonder where all these uh, people are coming from and you do wonder um, what they're doing when they get here. Well, there's your answer. Yes, well, if a French politician a couple of years ago said it's not rocket science. If you want to stop people coming over from, from France, you have to make Britain less attractive than France is. Yes. And one of the ways that we're more attractive is that the French clamp down on black market employment far more than we do here. Yeah. We're far more lenient. And if you want to really stop a huge uh, portion of the immigrants who are coming over here the ch across the channel, you have to actually penalise the employers and penalise the landlords who don't do the uh. necessary background checks. If you're not actually penalizing people who are employing or and housing these people, then you're gonna have the you're gonna have the flow continue unfettered and unchecked. Exactly right. Rafe, good to talk to you. Thanks very much. We've got to run. Rafe Hedel, Manku, historian, broadcaster, fascinating uh, guy, senior fellow at the New Culture Forum, of course, as well. Um, you wondering who's bringing you food? Well, now you know. This is Talk TV. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got a lot to do. Uh, we're nearly halfway through the show already, incredibly. Uh, we're going to talk now to Mike Neville, though, uh, former police officer, of course, former Met Police Detective, Chief Inspector. Mike, very good morning to you. Welcome yeah, morning, uh, to the show. Got a couple of dog stories to talk to you about because it seems to be getting more and more kind of frequent that we see these terribly bad horrible stories about you know dangerous dogs and we've got one uh, lately from Derby in the early hours of Saturday a man charged over the death of another man who died after suffering injuries in a dog attack I mean it basically looks as though obviously there's a, uh, um, a an order on uh, the amount of things we can say about what might have happened but it looks as though the dog was shot dead because it put officers and the public at risk that tells me that this is not a good dog that the owner of the dog is not a good person and why are we seeing more and more of these kinds of attacks well, I think there's two two things that come into play here. The RSPCA has, has said that the uh, lockdown has an impact on socialisation of dogs. Yeah. But you've got a real problem with drug dealers in the sense that why wouldn't you have a vicious dog? If you if you carry a knife mm. or some offensive weapon, the police can just arrest you straight away. Right. If you've got a very vicious dog, then there's all sorts of hoops that, that the police are going to leap through to, to prove it was dangerous. Right. And there was a terrible case up in the West Midlands where an elderly lady was... was a drug dealer's dog's got into a garden. She's right. 85 years old. And killed her. And yes. He just pleaded guilty. I saw that. And, pleaded and, guilty and, this week. And the dog in that case injured a child um, and, and six other people as well. 
I mean, these these creatures are just vicious, you know, and they they they're owned by vicious, wicked people. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. People yeah. and it's a, that is a deadly combination, mm. but it's the as I say with the with if you carry a knife you've got to sh- you, you can just be arrested. There's no mm. doubts about that. But with the dog, it's, it's difficult, and that's why you've got these criminals. And we only have to walk around London and yeah. whatever. What struck me about the figures though is that I could see certain areas like the Medway towns, yeah. which are a bit rough, inner cities, right. rough where you have got drug dealers with these vicious dogs. We yeah. can see as we walk around. But then, like in fifth place for dog attacks was Devon. What, right. What's going on there? I, don't I know. know it's very weird, isn't it? Well, I think what it tells you is, is that the whole sort of county lines drug business mm-hmm. has expanded into almost every single part of Britain now. I mean, even where my kids live down in Sussex, uh, they've got a problem uh, already um, with, with drug dealing. And they never used to have a problem. I mean, even as recently as last year. Yeah, I mean, these, I say these drug dealers, as you say, will travel from Birmingham, mm. London, Bristol, and they bring this culture of, uh, of evilness with them, whether yeah. it's weapons, vicious dogs and whatever right. else. But it's terrible. The other terrible thing is the amount of children who die with yeah. these dogs. Right. Uh, there's, been, there's been three uh, this year. Mm. And, and what you've got is little kids, people bring into the homes. It, it's usually a rough house. It's terrible. Council house home where they bring this vicious dog yeah. and some child two, three years old. They've got no chance right. against them. No. And I mean, it's not even a particular type of dog, is it? Is it any particular breed? I know that we've always had these dangerous dog acts and we've had conversations about how it's not really something that's workable because unless the specific dog is a specific breed, and it's not mixed at all, it doesn't qualify. Well, there's there's four four types of dogs are absolutely, absolutely banned, like right. pit bulls. Or, right. Pit bulls are one of them. But there's uh, various dogs are big and strong, Staffordshire Bull Terriers, yeah. which are quite nice if you bring them up in a nice home. Yeah. But if you bring them up in a vicious way, you train them to, to attack people who might attack. Well, you. Alsatians can be pretty bad uh, at, at that because they're because they're very very uh, sort of attack minded aren't they well one of the points a vet made to me once is that you, sh- you should never give dogs squeaky toys because yeah. dogs are trained to kill squeaky right. animals right. and of course babies and small children squeak you right. know and, and in a dog's mind it's yeah. a, a small creature and, it, right. and I just feel so these 
poor kids and this and elderly people. How do you, it's just a, a horrible way to die because you usually go for the throat as well. Yes. It's dreadful. And apparently, in both of these cases that we're talking about, armed police were called out. Certainly in the case in Derby, they actually had to shoot the dog. I mean, how much of that training do you get as a, as a police officer? Well, I mean, th that's what the firearms officers are trained for. When, when I was on the drug squad, we used to take the RSPCA inspector and a CO2 fire extinguisher because right. we used to fire the CO2 fire extinguisher into the dog's face yeah. so the dog couldn't breathe and... Right. The, you know, we had some amusing incidents where, the, you know, the police officers were running round and round right. trying to escape a vicious dog. But it, it's not funny when it bites you, and no. it's particularly if you're elderly or, or young. And particularly if it becomes, because one of the things that dogs can become is kind of um, absolutely single-minded, right? So it's not like it's just going to bite you. If it's going to attack you, it's never going to let you go. Yeah, and there's a pack mentality. We saw that there's a death of a lady in Catrum. Eight dogs yes, uh, turn up. Of once, course, yeah, the walker. Once, once turns, and I, as I say at the start, it's this. It's one you've got the these all these unintended mm. consequences of lockdown that we see throughout society. Yeah. Is one of those. And secondly, these these dogs are weapons. Mm, it really is awful. I mean, is there anything you could do about the kinds of people that have these kinds of dogs? I mean, is it something that the police are on top of or not? Well, there's a million... The trouble is with everything, there's always a thousand laws. You know, the yeah. law to this goes back to 1871, where you yeah. can summon somebody to magistrate's court. Right, you've got to keep it on a lead, you've got to get it muzzled. You know, but the police are, are not dealing with burglaries and robberies right. and things like that. Rapes. Yeah. So this comes down the bottom of the stack, and, and what criminals see is police in action and they just carry on doing what they do and they're on wicked ways and yeah. it's unless there's like more police officers and a more focus on this mm. uh, make why not make dogs an offensive weapon so yeah. if you can say that is an offensive weapon it could be seized more easily and taken in as i said at the moment there's so many loopholes and and, and barriers to jump over to seize the dog it could be yeah. made easier i mean i guess the trouble is until the dog actually does attack someone then there's not much you can do anyway. That's right. I mean, the police can say it's dangerous and vicious, but mm. really it all amounts to the offence happens when it starts doing bad things and biting yeah, people. Right. It's a shocking state of affairs, and it does seem to be getting worse, and I can only assume that that's because the people who are sort of training these types of bad, dangerous dogs are becoming more and more sort of apparent around the country. Well, because they see that it's like everything. The police, if the police don't act over shoplifting, more people go yeah. shoplifting. And then they become violent because they perceive that, well, I'm entitled to mm. take these goods. These drug dealers... Shoplifting, actually, yeah. while you're on the subject, is, is something that's massive, massively on the up. People keep telling me all the time, when they're out, they see people shoplifting, and nobody stops them. Yeah, and what what happened? The trouble with it is, is then the shoplifters think that they're really entitled to go in there and take what they want, yeah. and then they start assaulting the staff. And up to a point, if you're a security guard, why would you bother? Because yeah. who who says thanks if, right. if if they stop them? You know, better just to let them go. Yeah. There's no fight and whatever else. And what it does, it just dumbs down society and makes society a mm. really unpleasant place to be. And I just think people just look at things in societies in general and think the country's broken. Mm. Whether it's the illegal immigrants coming and that no one does anything people stealing not yeah. doing anything and if you're just a decent person who just wants to live your life and work yeah. hard it's becoming really frustrating it is and an awful lot of people say that to me now as well that you know the toughest thing to be now in this country is law-abiding because everybody else seems to get away with everything. That's right. And, and and what happens, and then more and more people think, well, I'll go and do this. Yeah. I'll go and try. And it's somehow we've got to draw a line. We've got to get better because the nation really seems to be struggling at yeah. the moment. 
Yeah, it really does. Listen, Mike, good to see you. Thanks for popping in. Mike Neville, former Amesha on Police uh, Detective Chief Inspector, on the dangers now uh, of dangerous dogs. If you've got a story, uh, we'd love to hear it. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up, though, we're going to talk some more about Diane Abbott. John McTiernan's going to join us, former advisor to Tony Blair. Let's see what he has to say about her and her expulsion, possibly, from the Labour Party. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I think we've got John McTiernan ready now, former advisor to Tony Blair. Uh, let's find out what he makes of the Diane Abbott situation. John, a very good uh, morning to you. Morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. A lot of people calling for uh, Diane Abbott to be kicked out of Labour. I mean, I suppose if you kick out Jer- Jeremy Corbyn as a result of his views on anti-Semitism or his inability to do anything about anti-Semitism or to do enough, you'd have to do the same to her, wouldn't you? They're two very different cases. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party during a period in which we were investigated by the EHRC, the only other political party in the UK ever investigated was the BNP, were found to be um, institutionally anti-Semitic, and Jeremy Corbyn would not accept the entire report. Um, is that the reason he, we wouldn't accept that, wouldn't apologise. He contested it, he argued with it. Diane Abbott's situation is completely different. She said something which was appalling, crass, offensive. She withdrew it. She apologised for it. She's dissociated with herself. Uh, if she'd been acting well, like that... Well, you can't do that, she, though, can you? She spent, she spent yesterday um, arguing, uh, saying it wasn't fair. She was taken out of context, misinterpreted. I think you have to have a situation where if people cop it, if politicians cop it, uh, and they make the apology and they make the withdrawal then we should accept it. And yeah, I but think she can't, uh, yeah, but it's not that simple, um, I'm afraid, John, because let's not forget that Diane Abbott would have been um, the Home Secretary in a Jeremy Corbyn cabinet. Uh, I don't think it would be a complete stretch of imagination to imagine... Very that, good Home Secretary. That, 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 sorry? Probably a very good Home Secretary. You think? I really, yeah. I really don't think you should be supporting sorry, Diane Abbott at this point. sorted out the institutional racism in the, in the Home Office. That would well, have been a good... Well, I don't think Diane Abbott's been able to sort anything out. And, and unfortunately for, for her, she's revealed what she still thinks about Jews. And, and unfortunately for the Labour Party, she's also revealed what that particular side of the Labour Party thinks about Jewish people. And she probably would have been in support of Jeremy Corbyn not accepting the entire report um, from, the, um, from the human rights uh, body. Wouldn't you say that? There's a lot of probabilities there. What we know is she said something that was crass and offensive, and she withdrew it, and she apologised. She didn't now, withdraw I, it, she published I, it. I, no, she, she didn't withdraw it, John, I, she published it. It was published I, 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 in I, her name. I accept the sincerity of Diane Abbott's apology. I, I don't. And I, and I, and I, I accept the sincerity of that apology for many reasons, partly because I know her, partly because I like her. I do not agree with her politics. I, I, we, we, we barely agree on anything within the Labour Party, but that is healthy. Uh, but on this, in this situation, you cannot, you can't, you know, this is a, a sole example of her saying this kind of thing, and she's apologised for it. I think well, that's well, no, it's not good enough. No, I'm afraid not. Because in the current situation, right, Keir Starmer has suspended her. He's obviously suspended her because he believes that she did something so uh, bad that she can't any longer represent the Labour Party and she has had the whip withdrawn. Now, surely it would make perfect sense then uh, to say that the next stage is to do exactly what they've done with Jeremy Corbyn and make it impossible for him to stand at the next election as a Labour Party candidate. Uh, he, suspend, he suspended uh, Diane so there can be a proper investigation under the rules of the Labour Party. What's the investigation going to prove? Office. An, an investigation by the Whip's office. Into what? What, was, uh, what she said and why she said it and the context of her withdrawal and her apology. Um, that's actually swift, firm no. action. 
you can't no you can't disassociate yourself john john hang on a second john you can't disassociate yourself from something you've written the bullying of his of his ministers where he havered and hesitated about taking action Keir's, I mean, Keir's been decisive on this one. No, that's rubbish, because apart from anything else, there was an investigation into Dominic Raab and whether or not he was a bully. Uh, the, the investigation <laughs> came back uh, with, a, with, a, with, with two cases where they thought he was a bit of a bully. I'm not really defending Dominic Raab, but Dominic Raab has not written something which could, un, in other circumstances, be construed as a hate crime. She has written something in her own words, right? She can't disassociate herself from that. She bloody wrote it. Well, she can. She she can. It was it okay. Was, it, so I could write anything down, publish it on social media, and then say in the next breath, I completely disassociate myself from this. It was obviously mad, and I didn't mean any of it. I assume you're not a Christian. I assume you don't believe in forgiveness. I don't believe in forgiving politicians. No, certainly not those who show well, over and over and over and over again anti-Semitic um, behaviour. I think public. I think public life would be a lot better if, when people made mistakes, they admitted them quickly and apologised for them. That's what Diane Abbott has done. Um, she's not attempted to defend what she said. In a, unlike well, you can't really defend it, can you, John? You're right. A completely unapologetic. So now you. So now you're in favour. So now you're in favour of politicians who say things which are anti-Semitic, as long as they can't, as long as they don't defend them. I'm not in favour of any politician saying anything. Things that are anti-Semitic. Do you think it was anti-Semitic what she said? Diane Abbott withdrew what she said. Do you think? Do you think it was anti-Semitic? I think it was. I think it was. I think it was crass and appalling. And do you think it was anti-Semitic? You don't, do you? I think it's. I think it's wrong to say. You don't think it was anti-Semitic, do you? No, I think it's wrong to try to make this difference between prejudice and racism. And I think Diane accepted that, and she said it in the. She said it in 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 her apology. Okay, well, I'll try one more time. Do you think it was anti-Semitic? I think it was. Yes or no, John? I think it was. I think it was wrong. Why can't you say yes or no? You're like Keir Starmer and women. Why can't you say yes or no? I'm not like them. I'm just. I'm. I. It was. It was. The apology was made. Right. By Diane Abbott for something that she said right. is wrong and she dissociated herself. Okay. With. Do you think uh, Diane think Abbott? Uh, all right, let me ask you another question. Do you think Diane Abbott is anti Semitic? She's a friend of yours. I don't think Diane Abbott is anti Semitic. You no. don't think so? No. So why do you think she wrote something that was anti Semitic? I can't. I, I, what I know, I've, I've, got no, I've got no idea why that letter was published under her name. What I do know... Well, it was published under her name because she wrote it and sent it well, in. I do, I do know she's withdraw, she withdrew it and she apologised for it. That's and not me, good she, enough. No, no, for me that is good enough. Well, that's honest. why the Labour Party is in the place that it's in and why yes, they've got a problem with Jewish people. 50, that's why we're 15 to 20 points ahead of the Tories. Well, yeah, it used okay. to be a lot further ahead before Keir Starmer opened his mouth. Well, it got, look, it used to be a lot further ahead because of this trust. Let's have this trust back. Look, the Tory party... Uh, are unable to solve a single problem from stopping the boats cutting inflation. Right. Why do you think it is that Keir Starmer has reversed his position on almost everything that he has ever said? I don't believe he has. Well, he has. You, you can see uh, the Times piece that was written perhaps on Sunday. Did you read that? Uh, no. You didn't? Well, you should. Because in there, they give chapter and verse on his record as the DPP, uh, his record on all manner of issues, which he's flip-flopped yeah. around on, um, and every single belief that he now has, he didn't used to have. No, politicians, I mean, people change their minds when they become politicians from being bureaucrats. Here's a politician now. And people change their minds as politicians when they get the reality of governing. And the world has changed since the hyperinflation. The world has changed since the invasion of Ukraine. The world has changed since the pandemic. The world has changed since, since Keir, Keir ran to be leader. And I'm very thankful we've got a leader 
who isn't actually a follower of Jeremy Corbyn. We've got a leader who is um, mainstream, uh-huh. the local party of mainstream. The so, so you think that uh, Keir Starmer should lift the suspension of Diane Abbott then, do you? No, I think I think I think there's a de- Labour Party process now, a disciplinary process, and that should that should go on. All right. And under what circumstances do you believe she should be kicked out of the party then? If the if the if the investigation finds out what? Well, I I personally don't think Diane Abbott should be thrown out of the Labour Party. Under any circumstances. Well, I'm not not for not not, not for writing something anti-Semitic. Not, not for, not for. I don't think somebody who apologises and withdraws and dissociates themselves from something should be thrown out of the Labour Party. You can't disassociate so, yourself from something you've written. She wrote it herself. She didn't support somebody else. She wrote it herself. Yeah. It is, as far as I know, there is not a rule in the Labour Party rulebook or in the rulebook of the Parliamentary Labour Party uh, that punishes an MP for apologising. I think it would be. Very strange if Diane Abbott really? was thrown. After a distinguished career where she is the longest serving black MP, the first ever black woman MP, an inspirational role model for so many people. So black that doesn't give her any special privileges. It, it, it gives her a particular status in the Labour Party and a particular it, status in politics. So she can basically so get away with anything then, in other she's words. A truly, she's a truly significant politician. What significant? For what reason? Because she's the first black woman. I see. So that's, that's significant now to you, is it? Don't you think that's a bit racist? <laughs> That is significant to our country, to, is it? to black women MP. Oh, really? Of course it is. Right. Well, she also wears two different shoes. You know, that, that doesn't make it's it significant. Our, our, to get the first black woman MP in, a, in, in the face of the racism in our country, the institutional racism in our country... Well, so how long has she been an MP? How long has she been an MP, John? Since 1983. So she's been a black MP since 1983 and all this terrible racism that she's faced seemingly results in her getting re-elected every single time there's an election. Doesn't sound very racist to me. If you if you if you want to deny that racism exists in the UK and that racism holds back black women as leaders, well, I tell you what. If you no, ad, no, if no, you no, admit no, if you admit no, that what she wrote was anti-Semitic, John, we no, might have a conversation. I'm happy. I'm happy if you deny that racism exists in the UK. Fine. I didn't deny it, race, racism existed. I said it doesn't seem to have hindered her career very much. You scoffed at it. She I, gets, no, she gets, it hasn't gets, hindered her career. Gets, you said she's been an MP. She's gets, been an she MP gets, for 40 gets, years, practically. She gets death threats. Uh, she gets vile racist abuse. She gets misogynistic abuse. She doesn't share that with most people. Of course she doesn't, but she does send well, it to the Well, why does everybody know about it then? She, because she sends it to the police. Oh, right. You can't... You, you, You're telling me that she predict, gets re-elected over a period of 40 predict, years and, and yet she has predict, suffered terribly as a result of being black. Yeah, I am actually telling you that okay. she has suffered racism for the decades in which she's been an MP, because that's an actual fact. And I think uh, you need to... Yeah, yeah but it hasn't hindered that, her career, is my point, John. Has it? She got... The, she No, she finally got to the front bench under Jeremy Corbyn. When she's her been an MP for 40 years. Yeah, she's got a good, solid Labour seat. Well, there we are. Good on the party for choosing her there. Yeah, great. John, thanks very much indeed. Um... I don't, I don't know what you do with Labour Party people, really. You know, anti-Semitism and Labour just seems to be something that they can't get their heads around. They don't think what she said is anti-Semitic. He couldn't say that it was anti-Semitic because Diane Abbott's his friend and because she's black and she's suffered. Do me a small favour, would you? This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Quite a, uh, a lot of fireworks going off in that last hour. We've got some more fireworks to come in this hour, of course, as well. We're going to be speaking to Simon Diggins, Colonel Simon Diggins, no less, a defence analyst, not least because uh, it would appear uh, that we've got a £3.2 billion worth uh, of junk sitting uh, just off the coast of Southampton. The Royal Navy aircraft carrier HMS Prince of Wales is reduced to acting as a scrap uh, yard, it says here, uh, as, to, as sister ship the Queen Elizabeth is kept afloat and questions are being asked about the future, not just of our Navy, but of this particular uh, mammoth boat as well, because unfortunately it doesn't seem to uh, be in any shape to serve any purpose right now, other than sitting, looking like a massive floating museum uh, of our armed forces. We'll find out from Simon what he makes of all of that. Plus, uh, we'll be talking a bit about Sudan uh, and where all those people are and whether they can all be rescued from Sudan, a place uh, which would appear to be a, uh, uh, in a pretty bad uh, war situation. I'm not quite sure why you would go there. There. Uh, a couple of you got plenty to say about Diana, but John McTiernan, what a waffler, says Brian. Diana Abbott should be kicked out of the Labour Party. End of story. Why does Diana Abbott get a pass every time she puts her foot in her mouth? Amanda says Diana Abbott knew exactly what she was doing and the reaction she would get. Purely attention seeking, like others I could mention. Bob says Abbott is a liar as well as thick. Well, that's possibly a little bit harsh. Uh, and there's one from someone without a name. Mike, what a cracking show so far. Thanks for being tough with McTiernan. If only the BBC would question people in the same way. My friends and family might see what's really going on in this country. And we've also been talking about the dangerous dogs uh, that run around the streets of this country as well, of course. But let's talk now to Colonel Simon Diggins, uh, because he's got probably plenty to say about what the current situation is uh, with the HMS Prince of Wales. Simon, a very good afternoon to you. Mike, good afternoon to you too. Yeah, thanks very much for, for talking to us. It's not been um, a great sort of recent history, is it, the HMS Prince of Wales? I mean, it set sail, I think, and initially broke down in the Solent um, shortly after uh, getting into it, and it hasn't really moved much since. Yeah, I think the Navy will be very disappointed with what's happened with the Prince of Wales. When the, the two new fleet carriers came in, uh, the intention was very much to be able to use them to project British power overseas, uh, to give them the independence that we need uh, and some freedom from using land-based uh, air bases. Um, and that's not turned out that way. Um, we've, we've struggled to keep them, them uh, working. Uh, and uh, HMS Prince of Wales, as you quite rightly pointed out, uh, appears to spend more time in dry dock than they actually at sea right. uh, doing its job. So, I mean, hugely disappointing and um, not clear how they're going to dig themselves out of this one because it just adds to the, the challenge that UK defence has in terms of projecting incredible forces at the moment overseas. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, what was it intended to be doing? I mean, what would it have been doing? I seem to remember when it was when it was first sort of launched, it was meant to sail across the Atlantic, wasn't it, and go and do something in the States? Well, I mean, that, that was the most recent, I mean, uh, mission which didn't work out. As I said, they, they, they barely got past the Isle of Wight. Uh, and the intention was very much to work with US forces uh, as a kind of centrepiece to... Uh, uh, sort of combined operations with them uh, but it's not working at the moment and um, the navy really does need to address what they're going to do about this the very disturbing news it's been used basically as a as a source of spare parts uh, for uh, hms queen elizabeth because right. that's not a, that's not a good way because at some point cannibalizing one ship means you end up not able to put the other ship back together so there's some serious questions to be asked about uh, what's going on with this this particular ship right and who's asking those questions and who's supposed to be answering them well, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace. Um, I think it's fair to say that, that uh, defence commentators uh, and also people like uh, Tobias Elwood, uh, the chair of the House Common Defence Committee, uh, are very concerned and people have expressed that concern. Yeah. 
from there. But I think it's one for all of us as, as, a, as a nation to say, you know, it's important we have effective armed forces. You know, what decisions have been made that are going wrong that enable us, that end us with something like this? So I think we all have to take a, a, an interest and, and engage with these particular issues. Yeah, exactly right. Because presumably it could be being used somewhere around the world. I mean, apart from the Arctic, you could have taken it round to uh, Sudan. Well, I, I mean, I think that's exactly the point. I mean, it's very hard probably to keep both of them operational at the same time. Mm. But basically at the moment, we, we're relying on one one fleet aircraft carrier uh, to keep going. Um, and not having the, the reserve means that there could be periods of time because all ships need refitting, mm. crews need to be changed over, etc. So at some point, you will have to withdraw Queen Elizabeth II from what it's doing, and, and we will then expect to substitute HMS Prince of Wales. But if that's not able to be done because it's not working, then we have a real problem on right. our hands. And I mean, does anyone know precisely what is actually wrong with it? I mean, aside from no. like, mm. there was an issue with the motor, there was an issue with yeah. the propeller, I understand. I mean, you'd think that the, the guys who built this thing sort of had one job. It's not like you build 20 of them in a day. You know, you take years to build one. You'd think it yeah. would get, they'd get it right. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, it's not about the detail. I mean, what you've, what you've just relayed to me is exactly what I've read, I've read in the papers. Yeah. But I don't have any particular additional insights uh, uh, to that. But they are fundamental. You know, the, the, the propulsion is, is, is essential to the whole thing. Yeah. And if they can't get propulsion working, we've got a problem on our hands. Yeah, exactly right. Fundamentally as well, in terms of the uh, sort of reality of, of the, of the Defence Department now, you know, we were told just a couple of years ago that, you know, hardware wasn't so important as software, that, you know, the real battles were going to be in cyberspace and that we shouldn't worry about training too many soldiers. I mean, that's all gone out the window now. Whoever came up with that plan, uh, I presume, has been shifted into some back office somewhere in Whitehall. I mean, I, I'd like to think that. I, I fear <laughs> that's not the case. Um, I mean, I think that the, the danger is that people often produce kind of policy or principles of policy based on what they see as a fiscal reality. They don't ask the hard question is, what do we actually need to defend our country yeah. and then produce the resources to do that? They, the envelope they have is a financial envelope and then design the forces to meet the financial envelope, yeah. not the other way around. Right, which is always going to end in a, in a bad situation, really. But, I mean, there's talk, isn't there, of, of, sort of more recruiting going on and possibly expanding the armed forces again. How, how's that going, if, if you know? Well, I mean, I know at the moment the recruiting is, 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 in, is in a poor state. I mean, we're not recruiting what we need, to, for example, in the army to replace what we need. I mean, you know, I think people are making efforts to try and to try and uh, meet the requirement. But we need in the region some 9,000 recruits a year. And currently we're hitting about six and a half. Now, that means that there's the automatically short in one year. The danger is that, that shortage then follows through as you go through, as you go through, if you like, the whole lifetime of a, of a, of a soldier. So you always end up shorter people. You're always in, in kind of catch-up mode. So I think there's a long, long, lot more work required to do that. There is also the work going on on, on revising what they call the the integrated re- review, which took mm. place. Uh, and I hope that that is a, a serious rethink based on what we're now understanding is happening in places like Ukraine, uh, and and also let's face it, some of the challenges are going on in places like Sudan at the moment. You know, we've got a problem on our hands in Sudan. How did we have the resources available to actually meet the real bill? Uh, there as well. So again, un- unsure that we've got the armed forces we need at the moment to meet was now a much more dangerous and much more serious situation around the world. Yeah, well, that's the trouble. As as we can see in Sudan, it kind of came out of nowhere. This. I mean, I know that South Sudan has been annexed from Sudan for a few years now. It's recognised uh, by the United Nations. But um, to be honest, I was always under the impression that Sudan was at war in one way, shape or form. Um, I'm surprised well, at the number of British citizens who were apparently stuck there. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, Sudan's been in an area in place of some chaos for a number of years, and you quite rightly point out, um, you know, South Sudan seceded from there about right. eleven or twelve years years ago. Was it that long um, ago? Blimey, time flies. Yeah, no, it's, right, it's too, I was I was actually I was working in Africa at the time. In, in I, you know what? I would have guessed yeah. about four years ago. That's extraordinary. No, no, it's it's a, it's a bit longer, but but some of the consequences of that. You know, are still living with us at the moment. So, for mm. example, Hemadi, who is the leader of the, the so-called re- uh, reaction for the RSF, there, who was sponsored by the partly sponsored with the, with the Wagner Group. Yeah, um, they, they were the, they were the, they were part of the the the, the forces that were used against both um, the in Darfur, the so-called Janjaweed militia, uh, and then an attempt to try and stop South Sudan from seceding. So, this has been chaos now for a number of years. In 2019, uh, the dictator, a man called Omar Bashir, was deposed. Uh, and what we're now dealing with at the moment is, is if you like, is a, is a fight between the people who deposed him. So Bahan, who was the leader of the armed forces, and Hemadi, who was originally his deputy, have essentially fallen out. Uh, and that's what we're now seeing. Mm. We're now seeing struggle for power uh, between those two individuals. And is it fair that uh, the government's being said to have been not quick enough to get people out of there? Because, as I say, it's not a place I would have expected to find a lot of British citizens. No, but we would expect to find businessmen, find, certainly signed a significant number of aid workers, and, and Sudan was originally um, a member of the Commonwealth. So there are some links there. They're not as strong as, as in some countries. Mm. I'm not too surprised to find the kind of numbers that, that are there. Um, the issue about whether they move quickly enough and urgent enough is always very, very problematic. But this particular f- bit of part of fighting has been going on since at least April the 15th. So we're, we're nine days down the line from there now. Yeah. Um, and, and I wonder whether perhaps earlier decisions might not have worked. But the situation is complex. I mean, the Americans who have significantly more resources than themselves and a major base in Djibouti, which is not so far away in comparative terms from uh, from ourselves, they've also decided not to conduct a, a, a non-combatant evacuation operation from there at the moment. So I have some sympathy with what the government situation the government's facing. Uh, but I am slightly curious that, you know, about some of the, the, the times of decisions and whether or not an early decision to evacuate more individuals could well have been taken. Yeah, absolutely right. But we'll see how that all goes. We wish them well. Simon, thank you very much indeed. Colonel Simon Diggins, their defence analyst, talking uh, about the situation in Sudan uh, and exactly what is actually going on there uh, and how dangerous it might end up being for anybody uh, who is stuck there. Uh, Let's talk to Angie, who's in Plymouth, wants to talk about Diane Abbott. Hello, Angie. Oh, hi, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. What can I do for you? Um, yeah, well, I just really, I've been watching the show as, I, as much as I can as I normally do, because it's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Um, you're very welcome. I just wanted to say about Diane Abbott, mm. Abbott okay, about this alleged apology. Right. Right. Because um, it isn't an apology. She's not apologising for what she believes. You can't uh, change what you believe. No. She's apologising because, sadly, having met her, um, she hasn't got the intelligence to realise that these views that she still holds and cannot therefore make an apology for are totally unacceptable yeah. and they are completely racist and i cannot understand how she thinks that my making an apology for being caught out and being held to account mm. for it as what we do in a democracy where freedom of speech is allowed that actually she's being held up for these disgraceful yeah. um, opinions that she holds it's just unbelievable well also isn't it incredible that john mctiernan who who normally is at least a reasonable person he's not yeah. on the far left of the party but even he yeah. couldn't bring himself to say it was anti-semitic because it's obviously such a toxic phrase in the labor party that you can't ever admit to doing it but you know she can't distance herself from it you know or disassociate herself from it that's what you do 
for something that somebody else has written. And you can say, oh, that's my colleague, but I disassociate myself from that. You can't disassociate yourself from what you've written yourself, can you? No, quite. Absolutely. And the thing is, if you or I, um, in my, I'm a tar teacher now, if I come out with something like that, um, I live in Plymouth, but I taught um, for um, eight, over eight years in a multicultural um, secondary school. I mean, if I come out, not by words, because I don't agree with it, of course, at all, but if I come out with something like that, I'd be sat quite rightly on the spot. Of course. Well, in no other place apart from the Labour Party would you not be sacked. You know, it's just yeah. the Labour Party because they have so many people in it that believe what she believes and who think the way she thinks, and that's their problem. It's awful. And what, if you can just bear me one more minute, the other thing that really does annoy me is when people say that this country is racist. I'm really. I'm really oh. I mean, he was trying to make out that she's had a terrible time, and I'm sure she has had abuse. We all get abuse from time to time. She may get more than others, but she's been an MP for 40 years. It doesn't tell yes. me that her career path has been in any way impeded. Oh, absolutely. You know, she, you know, I would say she's a classic example of how well... Um, people can do whatever their background, yeah. whatever their colour, exactly. whatever their religion. Of course, and, she's um, a great example of that. And it um, really annoys me because um, I just believe that this is divisive and it actually incites racism. And trust me, as a Crystal Palace fan, I know what abuse is, all right? So, <laughs> you know, I, and, you know, and I really just do think that, we you know, we need to sort of just pull together yes. and respect one another's points of view, respect um, other, each other's cultures. And having, as I say, lived and worked in London, great years, that was my experience. Yes. And it shouldn't be a competition as to who's been more downtrodden than who else. You know, I mean, you know, don't treat people badly. End of story. That's it. Um, thank you very much indeed. What a great call from Angie in Plymouth. Uh, wonderful woman, uh, very sensible and very smart. That's why she's listening to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Of course. Let's hear from more. Just like Angie. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Ian Collins coming next. He'll be in just before one o'clock to tell us what's coming up on his show. Uh, just before this show started this morning, uh, we got the terrible news that Len Goodman had passed away at the age of 78. And there's been an awful lot of tributes uh, flying in from all kinds of places. Let's talk now to Vincent Simone uh, from Strictly. He's a ballroom dancer. Uh, very, very uh, good friends with Len Goodman. A terrible uh, loss for, for the country, really, Vincent, because Len was one of those guys that was just sort of quintessentially you know seemed to me to be very sort of British he, he was funny he was he was he, he didn't mind people making fun of him you know he was a charming character wasn't he yes he was good afternoon um the most thing I, I loved about Len was everything yeah he was a man's man he was every one of us um good friends uh old school uh full of rules when it came to dancing he knew more than anybody else. He studied dancing since he was really young. Yeah. He knew all the books of dancing technique inside out. And I remember he used to teach all of us this really old style dance steps, right. dance routines. And we all look, used to look up to him and still do. Yes. And I mean, he was one of those characters, wasn't he, that just lit up a room, it seems to me. I mean, I, I never knew him terribly well, but I was sometimes in places where he was. And he was he had also had a word for, for everybody. He was always very good at walking around and talking to everybody. Yes, it was, um, it was a very good friend, not just to me, to everybody. It, the type of person that you, even to tell your personal problems almost, it would be there. It was like a, a, a dad's figure for right. all of us. 
Yes. Um, and he'll be missed a lot. I mean, the last time I saw him was in November. I did a, a performance for his uh, charity event, and he picked up the microphone throughout the performance and said loads of good words about myself. And that made me really emotional in front of everybody. Yes. He's a legend. Right. He's a legend. He's a proper legend, yeah. And that word sometimes gets used for about the wrong people, but in his case, absolutely yeah. right. Charles yeah. Brandreth has written today, that he's a great, what a gentleman. He says he once met him on the beach at Broadstairs a few years ago and he said to him that he'd prepared his greeting for St. Peter uh, when the day came. Uh, he was going to say, apparently, heaven. Yeah, it's, um, he had lots of respect from everybody. You know, I know he left strictly to go to, to do the American one. Yeah. But still, I think he lived throughout strictly and still will leave. Uh, through Strictly for the next years to come. Mm. And I mean, still, sometimes I walk down uh, the street, the high street in Guildford, and I still hear people saying seven from the <laughs> distance. So yeah. it's one of those. He put like a big stamp to our country. So it'll always be there. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole Strictly kind of empire really is is synonymous with him, isn't it? Yes, yes. Like I said, He's the, the, he was the, the head judge, but also he's the guy that set the rules. Thank goodness, because, you know, when it comes to TV, people, you know, producers start going crazy with, uh, you know, uh, special effects and everything. But he always set the rules, as in, like, no lips throughout performances, right. no, what well, he used to say, fuffing around before right. you start dancing. Right. I don't know if you remember. And initially, we all said, yeah, but we're on TV. People need to see a show. But yeah. I said, no, we have to keep the tradition going. Right. Very traditional and, and, and yeah. a, very, a very sad loss. What's your, what's your favourite memory, would you say, of him, Vincent? I have loads. But the, my main favourite um, uh, memory is when he used to tell us stories when he was younger. And my, the funniest one I ever heard in my life is the one that he wanted to have tattoos done when he was young, a teenager. Right. And he showed us, he opened his chest and he had one dot because he couldn't carry on because of the pain. <laughs> so then the guy said, oh, we'll do, do it on the other side. So we were all expecting a big tattoo. Right. He opened the other side, he had another dot. So he ended <laughs> up with two tattoo dots on his chest right. and that was hilarious that is funny and i mean he must have been great fun to work with as well because you know not always in television when you meet people who are in it are they as nice as they as you thought they might be but he looks like he really was yes i mean all of the judges obviously when you see them on tv they have the character and everything but outside the studio when they become like real people yeah. all of them they were amazing and like i said len i'm not just saying this because of what happened but Everybody adored Len. Everybody. Yeah. He was always there for you. Any questions, it was, oh, it was always there. And on tour, because we did tours together around the country. With yeah. strictly tours. So it's an amazing, amazing man. And he was amazing. working a long time into his 70s as well, wasn't he? I mean, he didn't seem to have any, any, he seemed to have full of energy. Yes, and what he made him keep going, he always said, is the passion for dancing. He always liked to see you know, um, this league um, of born dancing yeah. going through different eras, different decades now, because he's been working for 12, probably 15 years now mm. on TV and strictly and dancing with the stars in America. But it was good. It was good to have him because, like I said, it kept as much as possible born dancing traditional instead yeah. of 
evolving to something else. Yes, exactly right. Well, he will be very sadly missed. Vincent, thank you very much indeed for, for taking the time to talk to us. A sad day. Vincent Simone there uh, from Strictly, one of the dancers on the show who, uh, like many people, has got great things to say uh, about um, the passing of Len Goodman. Len Goodman was a wonderful, warm entertainer who was adored by millions. He appealed to all ages and felt like a member of everyone's family, uh, says Tim Davey from the BBC. Len, Len was at the very heart of Strictly's success and he will be hugely missed by the public and his many friends and family. Um, and, of course, Piers Morgan uh, also said, always had a laugh with Len, uh, swapped a few strong opinions, a quintessential Londoner and a top bloke. Um, I'm sure Piers will be uh, uh, greeting him the same way again um, tonight on his show, Piers Morgan Uncensored, from 8 o'clock. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.